You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Dr. Jennifer Goldman-Wetzler, and she is founder and CEO of Alignment Strategies Group. She's also author of the book, Optimal Outcomes. We're going to talk to her a little bit about how to improve team performance, how to improve leadership skills, and really talk about this whole issue of conflict. I always find that conflict is a big topic in a lot of organizations. Unfortunately, I think a lot of organizations don't have effective strategies when it comes to conflict, but also, unfortunately, conflict is just kind of a natural part of business. The question is, what do we do with it? How do we deal with it? How do we use it effectively to advance ideas, advance thinking? And Jen's got some really great insights and some really great strategies and some probably different strategies than you're used to. If you've read lots of books on conflict, this is probably going to be a little different, a little new, which I'm excited by because I think there's some really great ideas and in, in different ways that you can really approach that. And I'm excited to talk about how to apply this to the leadership role. With that, Jen, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Bruce. Yeah. So why don't we talk a little bit about background first before we sort of jump right into conflict as a topic. How did you get into this? What was your background that got you into uh, really looking at kind of organizational performance, this topic of conflict, writing the book? What's the backstory? Well, as with many things in life, it all goes back to childhood. So I grew up in a family that had a lot of conflict in it. It was, you know, a family of screamers and door slammers. And so I learned from a very young age how to deal with conflict on my own. Mm -hmm. And so on one side of my family, there were, you know, the screamers and the anger and the rage really went, it was multi-generational. But on the other side of my family, I had a great model in my grandma Florence. And it was really just by her very presence that she was often able to help calm the rest of us down. And so it was, I think, the juxtaposition of learning how to deal with the conflict that came up for me in my family and also having this model of Grandma Florence, who was just a kind of a natural, she was the first conflict whisperer that I knew of. And now my job is to help each and every one of us learn how to become the conflict whisperers of our own lives. I like that concept of conflict whisperer. What what does a conflict whisperer do? (laughs) Yeah, great question. Well, the conflict whisperer uses the eight practices in the optimal outcomes method, (laughs) for sure. And, you know, it's really about learning how to calm yourself down for many of us, especially Mm -hmm. those of us who our conflict habit is to go to anger, go to aggression, go to acting out. And so, learning how to deal with that and free ourselves from these conflict loops that we get into where we're doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, learning how to do something different in the (laughs) face of that. The definition of madness, I think, is something along those lines. Exactly. 
Yeah. And, and so, how did uh, how did you get into the book? I mean, give us a little bit of um, going from being you know being exposed to or having to deal with conflict early in life to now writing the book. What were some of the professional steps you went through to kind of get to the point of having this be actually your core subject matter? Sure. Well, as an undergrad at Tufts University, I studied social psychology, and there was a course that I could take called Conflict Resolution 101, and I like knocked on the door of that course as a freshman and a sophomore, and finally was let in as a senior after I had gotten back from studying in Jerusalem, which is called the... the yeah capital of peace, but also the capital of conflict in many ways as well. So, learned a lot on the ground from working with Israelis and Palestinians that year abroad, and then came back and took the course. And Tufts is part of the consortium of the program on negotiation at Harvard Law School. So, it's housed at Harvard Law School, but there are many universities, particularly in Boston, that are part of that consortium, and Tufts was one of them. So, I knew that I wanted to get involved at the program on negotiation. And a couple of years after I graduated, I was able to and ended up teaching and facilitating as part of the program of negotiation at the law school and for a number of years went around the world teaching the getting to yes methodology that's part of the program of negotiations mm-hmm. core method and i after a few years found that it was incredibly effective and that there were times when people whether because their emotions got in the way or because the methodology simply didn't always work for a variety of different reasons clients were stuck And so, I decided to go back and do my PhD in organizational psychology with a focus on intractable conflict in 2002 in New York City at Columbia to study with Mort Deutsch and Peter Coleman, who Mort is widely considered the father of conflict resolution. And so, I did a deep dive into emotions and particularly the emotion of humiliation and spent five years funded by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security to look at these really challenging emotions and how they exacerbate long-term conflicts. And out of that, I said to myself, you know, I could spend the rest of my life just looking at the causes of long-term conflicts and not necessarily have anything to say about how do we free ourselves? How do we get out of these situations? So, I've now spent the last 13 years exploring the question, how can we free ourselves from these cycles of conflict? Things that just seem to keep seem to keep going around and around, no matter what we do, no matter whether we're applying the most amazing win-win principled negotiation methodologies to them, they just don't seem to get resolved. What could we do instead? And so, I studied wisdom and studied real people in real organizations, clients of mine over a 20-year period, and then wrote the book Optimal Outcomes as a result of all of that work. So, I'm fascinated about a couple of things. So, obviously, extensive background and kind of looking at conflict and I would say it sounds like lots of different kind of scenarios and, and kind of different contexts. One thing I'm always curious about is, is this idea of, is all conflict bad? And to the extent that there's sort of a difference between, you know, the conflict that is kind of effective or that we need to engage in to kind of develop ideas and to argue points and to find higher levels of thinking versus sort of destructive or non-constructive conflict. I guess, do you distinguish or do you see kind of categories of conflict or types of conflict and approach them differently depending on the situation? Yeah, as you just alluded to, I think there are a number of different cuts, a number of different ways we could look at what makes some conflict productive and constructive and some conflict not. One, the cut that I take, mm-hmm. and you know, I could talk about multiple ones, but I think the most important one for this conversation is the difference between conflict that when you try to resolve it, you are able to, versus conflict that when you try to resolve it, 
it persists, no matter what you or others have tried to do, no matter what kind of methodology you're using or not. And so I'm particularly interested in that kind of conflict that persists. And so that's why I wrote this book, because it's all about what to do when conflict resolution efforts fail. It's all about how to free yourself instead, how to stop trying to resolve something that has shown itself to be unresolvable. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's kind of the maybe a not perfectly constructed sentence, but how to resolve unresolvable conflict. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. And, and I decided I needed to use different language. And I write about this in the book as well. Language can be so important. So I didn't want to say how to resolve the unresolvable. I wanted to say something else to send the message to people that it's okay to not resolve conflict all the time. There are some conflicts that are not going to be resolved. And what else could we do? Well, we could free ourselves from those situations. So, if you think about conflict as going around a loop where your conflict habit interacts with someone else's conflict habit or multiple other people's conflict habits and gets locked in a pattern of interaction that keeps you stuck on that conflict loop, the question isn't how do you resolve that? It's kind of like a silly question. When you're on a loop, what are you going to, there's nothing to resolve. (laughs) So, the question becomes how do you make breaks in that loop so that you can free yourself from the self-reinforcing nature of that loop? And how do you create an ideal future for yourself so that you have a magnet outside of the loop, which I call ultimately your optimal outcome, to help you get, first of all, break free from the loop, and second of all, know what are you shooting for outside of the loop? And then how do you design test and ultimately take a pattern-breaking path to get from that conflict loop into an optimal outcomes loop instead. Yeah, I like that loop analogy. I'm a big systems thinker and spend a lot of time in software and programming. And, you know, one of the things we've run into is these these uh, loops, these negative feedback loops are these loops that you have to interrupt, right, literally in a program so that you don't get stuck in an infinite uh, calculation. But it's almost that idea. It's like people, right. you know, teams, individuals, groups of people get stuck in these patterns and, and they're loops, they're literally pattern loops that, you know, trigger, you know, a series of triggers that happen in an order that just reinforce themselves. Yes. Um, I guess, how do you, how do you kind of distinguish or how do I, you identify as someone who is in that situation, the difference between, or identify that you're in a, a, this kind of conflict loop pattern, that you're, you're in one of these situations where you need to think about how do you disrupt the pattern, as opposed to just a, hey, you need to try one of the traditional you know, conflict resolution strategies. Yeah. Well, a very simple answer to that question is that people can actually go online and take a quiz to find yeah. out what is your conflict habit. So, if you go to optimaloutcomesbook.com slash assessment, you'll see two assessments there. One is called emotion traps and the other is called conflict habits. And if you click start survey on the conflict habits one, it'll take you like seven minutes. It's totally free, totally easy. And you'll identify which of these four conflict habits that I write about in the book is the one that is your primary one. So, that's a simple and easy way to notice what is your habit. But in any situation, just asking yourself the question, stop, take a pause, (laughs) and ask, what loop are we stuck in here? So, the four, like if just a quick overview of these four habits, Mm -hmm. we blame other people, we avoid other people to the point of shutting down completely in the face of conflict. Some of us blame ourselves and shame ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then some some of us, we relentlessly seek to collaborate with other people, even (laughs) when other people don't, not interested in collaborating with us. And so, if you ask yourself, which of those four do I tend to engage in across all contexts in my life? And sure, people ask me all the time, you know, could 
could my conflict habit change depending on the context that I'm in? You know, at home, I might be more likely to blame others. While at work, I might be more likely to relentlessly collaborate or vice versa. Absolutely, that's for sure true. And I think it can still be a very helpful exercise practice to ask ourselves, which one of these is my primary go-to default, right? And so, to answer your question, just taking the step back to pause and notice yeah. um, when I get stuck, when it feels like I'm doing the same thing over and over again, what conflict habit am I using? And then, of course, you can either ask your friend or colleague or spouse or whomever to take the quiz and find out for themselves what's their conflict habit, or you can just take your best educated guess about what their conflict habit might be. It'll give you a very good sense of how you've gotten stuck with other people. What's your pattern? Is it blame, blame? Is it relentlessly collaborate, shut down? How are you interacting with other people? Yeah, I, I like that idea. It's like once it's kind of the deja vu. Like once you see the merry go around, go around once or twice, you kind of need to take a step back and hey, I'm, I might be on a pattern here. Right. So the four strategies or the four tendencies that you mentioned, would you characterize these are kind of problematic or where people run into problems? Or are these just general strategies that you apply and sometimes they work, but other times they don't and you need to kind of see which situation you're in? Or how would you describe these four tendencies? Yeah, it's a great question. So the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> because it's, So the way I describe these is we do these with the best of intentions and often they work for us, which is why we do them. Right. So if, for example, if I'm a competitive person by nature, I typically will seek to win an argument or win a fight. And that can be helpful in many contexts. If I'm playing tennis, my competitive nature is a boon to me. (laughs) But if I'm doing that all over the place to the point where it's become my habit. And that's why I call them the four habits, because these are just habits that we end up relying on. So when we take them to the extreme, they become our limitations and they get us stuck in conflict. So the same thing with avoiding. If you avoid a situation because it's a conversation with people who are not that important to you about an issue that's not that important to you, great to avoid. Mm -hmm. But if you're avoiding an important conversation with your daughter or your mother or your boss, likely what's going to happen is that situation is just going to keep boiling, 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 and then it's going to boil over. And then you're going to really have a big conflict to deal with on your hands. So, each one of these habits has that, uh, you know, that's how it works. I use this phrase a lot in coaching of, is it serving you well? <laughs> and it sounds yeah. like there are times when it may serve you well. That might be the, a perfectly acceptable and, and successful strategy, but other times it's not. And and I think like so much like leadership is, you know, there are times when our go-to strategies, you know, work and that's, they've been successful for us and we've, we've learned them and relied upon them. But, you know, as we move into different contexts, different levels of leadership, you know, we have to be willing to take a step back and assess them and say, maybe I need to do something differently now. That's, that's exactly point. right. That's exactly right. And that's why my advice is the first step is just to notice what is my habit. And then on a case by case basis, each situation, what I want you to do is ask yourself, what else could I do instead? So Mm. the last three times I've had this conversation with my spouse, we've ended up fighting and then slamming doors and screaming at each other. Well, next time, what else could I do? (laughs) Could I take a walk around the block? Could I take my three deep breaths? Could I say I need to talk about this another time? We know what else could I do? Yeah. 
And do you think you you mentioned this in the beginning? You kind of your own personal story of of having you know exposed to a lot of conflict early. Do our strategies, our go to habits, are they a function of you know early experiences and kind of things that were formed or established in our kind of behaviors early in life, or how, how yes. do these habits come about? Yes, they absolutely are. And I don't want everyone listening to this going in now, like suddenly everyone's blaming their parents for all the reasons <laughs> why they get stuck in conflict as an adult. I apologize so to all parents. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's not only about parents, right? It's every, all of the influences yeah. that make us who we are for sure are influencing factors. So, you know, the household that you grew up in, absolutely. You know, yeah. in my family, I can trace it back, as I said, multiple generations. My mm-hmm. grandfather had a hot temper and, you know, also, as one of the next practices in the Optimal Outcomes Method is about mapping out the situation to give you a broader perspective and a deeper appreciation for the complexity of the situation so that you can see levers for change in a situation that you would not have noticed before. And also what this does is it gives you empathy because it helps you see the pressures that different people on your map have been under in their lives that might be leading them to act or respond the way that they are in a particular situation today. So, for example, you know, my father has a temper, I have a temper, my grandfather has a temper, but when I became an adult and realized that my grandfather was an immigrant. He came to this country with nothing, having escaped Nazi Germany and it took six years to get from Europe to America. He lost his father, never saw him again. His brother never saw him again. So, the grief and pain that my grandfather went through and never was able to process for me to have an appreciation for that. And, you know, it's possible that this anger gene kind of goes back millennia in my Mm -hmm. family. It's very possible. And that it's also, and it's also possible that it was exacerbated by what my grandfather went through in his life. So, to be able to have that empathy and also understand how we grew up does matter. And also recognize we could be influenced by sports coaches and the media, everything we've read, you know, TV shows. So, we learn, we do learn these from very young ages, how to respond and not always in positive, helpful, constructive ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they can be, uh, you may not realize you're doing them, <laughs> or yeah. you may not be super aware of them. I mean, they, exactly. they can be almost, um, you know, reactions. Um, yes. And a knee-jerk reaction is not just um, Absolutely. awful. So, I think certainly this I kind of take a step back also gives you kind of view on yourself, like what are you doing right now and, and how do you fit in that? Yes, exactly, which is why it felt very important to me to have as the very basis of eight practices, the first one is just to notice how you tend, what habit you tend to fall back on as a default. Because until you can do that, it's impossible to break free from anything because you don't know what you're stuck in and you you need to know what you're stuck in 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 order to break free. But I I don't want us to stay there. We need to then continue on to the other practices. Just insight alone is not going to get you very far, but you do need to start So So once you have kind of that insight, what's the next step in, in the model? Yeah. So, the next practice is what I was talking about just a minute ago about Mm -hmm. mapping out the situation because we typically see ourselves as, you know, it's between me and you. And usually when we're stuck in recurring conflict, the situation is a bit more complex than that. And so, mapping out the complexity can really help us see levers for change. It can help us have empathy for other people. So, that's the next practice. And then there are a couple more practices, one about emotions and how listening to our emotions can really help us. And then also looking at our shadow values, those things that we really care about in life that are driving our behavior, but that we would never admit to anyone that we care about. And so, 
we kind of keep those in the shadow and yet they ooze out anyway and they wreak havoc on our relationships with oh, other people. It. Yeah, so let's talk about these a little bit. And I'll say I, I do, when I work with companies who are doing their core value work, one of the things I talk about is anti-values, which is the thing you're willing to give up to get your value. And it's hmm. it, it's a similar kind of thing where it's it's like there's a trade-off or there's a consequence of certain values and you, and you need to know that there's kind of double-sided aspects to all these. And it's the more you can appreciate that, the more successful you can figure out how to use it. But tell us about shadow values because yours is a little different or it's a it's particular around things that drive who you are or that define kind of how you act or what you prioritize that you may or may not be aware of or, or yeah. acknowledging is my my take on it when I read the book. But give mm-hmm. us some, some examples and give us some details on this. Yeah. So the easiest way to do this is to contrast with our ideal values. So I define our ideal values as those things that we care about in life and mm-hmm. we're proud to tell other people that we care about. So, for example, some of my personal ideal values are things like adventure, leadership, spirituality, healthy living, making the world a better place. So, that's my, in my ideal world, that's what's driving my life. Mm-hmm. And on a good day, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> And in contrast is what I'm calling shadow values with a, you know, a nod to Carl Jung, who created this concept or at least popularized this concept of we all have a side of ourselves that we are proud to show the world. And then we have this side of ourselves that we are not proud to show the world. And in an mm-hmm. unconscious way, we push these things down. So I'm applying that specifically, that idea specifically to values and saying we all also have another set of values that we're not proud of and that we push down out of our own conscious awareness. So we can't even admit that we have these values. And I'll give you some examples in a minute. We can't even admit that we have these values to our own selves, never mind tell yeah. anyone else about them. Yeah, exactly. So they drive conflict. So for some classic shadow values that drive conflict with other people are things like power, control, recognition, a need to be right, financial stability. For those of us who think of ourselves as risk-taking entrepreneurs, the idea that we would want financial stability Mm. can be very difficult to admit. For some people, even love can be a shadow value. We've learned, you know, we we naturally seek love, but we've learned that it's not okay to show love or ask for love or want love. So, when our need, for example, you know, a need for recognition emerges, but we're not allowing ourselves to admit to ourselves that we want to be recognized, then that need can come out in all kinds of unhelpful ways that can really exacerbate conflict and make it hard, make our relationships with other people challenging. So, my advice is to ask ourselves, how can we honor our own shadow values? And also, there's a whole other piece of work to do about if we're having trouble with someone else and their behavior, we can ask ourselves what might be a shadow value for them that they're not even willing or able to admit to themselves, but that may be running the show for them. Can we honor that just even sometimes just for ourselves? We don't need to necessarily, and I would not advise in most cases, walking up to someone and saying, hey, I think your shadow (laughs) value is blah, 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 right? Like, not going to go too well. Yeah, you get punched in the nose for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But just the ability in in thought, in our thoughts, and sometimes maybe in our words and in our actions to be able to honor our own and other shadow, others' shadow values can go a long way. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the whole, um, 
you're willing to kind of look beyond the surface and like kind of figure out really what is going on under the surface for that for them. And and the more you can even just ask the question starts to open up possibilities and, and gets you curious about stuff. Uh, but right. I love that idea of shadow value that you have to do that with yourself as well. And I guess once you identify that, yeah, you know what, maybe there is, you know, a need for recognition in this conflict that I have that I'm not either expressing or not I'm not successfully dealing with, what are the strategies? How can you how can you use that awareness in terms of changing the the habit that you choose or the approach that you choose? Yeah. Well, like just in that example, you could say to yourself, mm. you know what? I really don't this makes me so uncomfortable. I like jumping out of my own skin. I don't even want to admit that I care about being recognized for my work or my achievements in this situation. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, the truth is I do. I yeah. do care. And so what could it look like for me to acknowledge that in the situation? Now, if it's a close enough relationship or a trusting enough relationship with someone else, you know, you might ask yourself, and I love what you just said about just asking yourself the question. Like you don't need to commit to anything. Yeah. You can just ask the question. So asking yourself the question, could I say to this other person, let's say it is my manager, and I I feel like I do have a close enough relationship where I could say to the person, you know, I worked really hard on this thing and I'm just feeling like nobody's noticing and you haven't noticed. And I just, as silly as it might sound, just hearing you say, hey, Jen, job well done. Nice work would go a long way if that's how you feel. I mean, maybe Mm -hmm. you don't think that. And if not, I would also value hearing that. Like that would be helpful to me to hear so that I would know if I didn't do a good job. But just knowing that you care and that you noticed would help. So not every relationship can withstand that kind of depth and honesty. But as I said, sometimes just for ourselves to acknowledge it, you know, that I need, and I've, I've seen this happen so many times with students and clients where in the blink of an eye, in a moment of insight, thinking in particular about one of my students who he couldn't stand it. He, he was the most successful person in his extended family. He came from a very uh, poor background, family with not a lot of money, not a lot of resources, relation, not a lot of relationship resources either. And it was so upsetting to him that his mother in particular never acknowledged, and his yeah. siblings never acknowledged him for what he had achieved in life. And when he mapped it out and he saw, and you see how these practices kind of are interconnected with each other. Yeah. So from the mapping exercise, he saw that, of course he knew, but mapping it helped him see in black and white that how successful he was and how it would bring up jealousy among his siblings for them to acknowledge outright his success. So it just took away his need to even have them recognize yeah. him just yeah. noticing that and for his mom too that for whatever reason she she was of course happy for him and and proud of him but she couldn't say it she was too distracted by everything going wrong in her own life to be able to be there for him the way he wanted and so he was able to free himself from that situation because but he never had a conversation with any of them about it but yeah. he was free after doing this shadow values practice. Well, and, and ultimately, conflict is a bit of a perception, right? And you change your perception and you may that actually may resolve or at least shift the conflict mm-hmm. to be something different. So, right. you know, we can, we can only change ourselves. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So. That's what they work. So, and a yeah. lot of people point out to me, you know, they ask me like, well, isn't this hard? Doesn't this take courage to do these practices? And my answer is absolutely yes. And guess <laughs> what? Sometimes having the courage to do what you can yeah. control, which is what has to do with you and your own sphere of influence, as hard as that may be, it's a heck of a lot easier 
(laughs) than trying to change someone else. (laughs) So, if you have to choose between the two, it's going to be this, you know, doing your work on yourself is going to actually be easier. Yeah. And so, and give us the next couple steps after shadow values. Sure. So, the next practice is to ask yourself, what is the ideal future? So, these first practices that we just talked about are all about what you can do to break the pattern. So, you can listen to your own emotions, notice your own and honor your own shadow values and other shadow values, notice the pattern you've been stuck in, map it out. And then we shift to the next set of practices, which all have to do with building a path out of where you've been Mm. so that you can not only break free from the conflict loop, but stay free from the conflict loop and achieve an optimal outcome. So the next practice is all about imagining an ideal future and think of yourself like Martin Luther King Jr. when he's, you know, giving his, I have a dream speech Mm -hmm. and really ask yourself, what is your dream for this situation? Because so often we're stuck pointing our fingers at each other, looking backward at who's to blame. We're not looking ahead at what we do want, but we can't just use our rational thinking brain. We've got to use our imagination because if the rational thinking brain could have solved the problem, it probably would have done so a long time ago. So, we want to use our imagination to imagine what is an ideal future. So, that's uh, the next practice. And then the practice after that is all about designing a pattern-breaking path, because it's not just one thing, one action that got you stuck in conflict. It's probably not going to be one pattern-breaking act that's going to get you out. It's going to be a series of pattern-breaking actions. No no silver bullet. (laughs) Exactly. It's going to be a series of them. So, it's about thinking, how do I design a path that's going to be actions that are simple. We don't want to add more complexity on top of an already complex situation. You want to be able to track your impact over time. So, keep your actions simple, keep them surprisingly different from what you've done before, and build one action upon the next. And then you want to test in small, safe environments to begin, test those actions. Try them mm-hmm. out with, might not even be in the situation. It might be with someone who's closer to you or safer, yeah. where if you mess up, it's going to be okay. They'll forgive you. Test them out. Test out these new behaviors. See how you do. Feedback what worked well, what didn't work well, what would I do differently next time. Feed that back into the next experiment. And you can also think ahead about how would I prepare for unintended consequence if it should happen and how would I prevent it from happening. Uh, So, that's testing your path. And then finally is choosing an optimal outcome. And there's um, a practice that I uh, ask people to engage in, which is to look at what are the costs I'm paying for staying stuck in conflict? What are the costs I might pay if I pursue my ideal future or optimal outcome? And then what are the costs that I might pay if I choose to walk away from this relationship or from this situation. Because so often we are so aware of the costs of walking away, we don't do it. And that's one of the main reasons we stay stuck in conflict, because walking mm-hmm. away seems so impossible and so horrible. But what happens is we're, we're not usually very present to the costs we're paying for staying stuck. We might know that they're there, but seeing them written down in black and white can really help. And then making a very conscious choice about, do we want to pursue this optimal out, this potential optimal outcome? or pursue possibly walking away. And depending on who you are, I've seen it go both ways. Sometimes people end up walking away in a situation, from a situation where they thought they were really stuck. And it turns out that the costs they'd pay for walking away are smaller than the costs they're paying for uh, mm-hmm. being stuck and vice versa. That uh, sometimes the costs that we would pay for walking away are so great and the costs that we're paying staying stuck are so great that the costs of taking action seem very small by comparison, and it gives us that courage to take action to try to pursue this ideal future. Yeah. And I think if I remember rightly from the book, and and I certainly have found this in life and with a lot of the teams that I coach, is there's a question of time frame. It's kind of 
oftentimes that making the change can be a short-term high cost, you know, a painful, it's, it's sometimes tough mm. to take action, to make a change, to do these things. But if you really stop and think about, well, what's the long-term cost of staying in the situation? You know, well, in, for the next month, it might not be so bad. But if I stay here for a year, for two years, for three years, the, the net present value, <laughs> yes. net present cost right. of staying in the situation could be quite severe. It's just the problem is extended over time. And so I think a lot of it is really, you know, doing the hard work of, of saying, what, what is the really long-term cost of staying in this? Even if I could do it easily for another month, doing it yes. for a year, for multiple years is not worth it. Yes, that's a really great point. I love that. Jen, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, more about Optimal Outcomes, what's the best way to get that information? The best place to go is optimaloutcomesbook.com. And there's a ton of free resources there. There's templates for every single one of the eight practices that we just talked about, including the map. And you can find that at optimaloutcomesbook.com slash resources. And you can also find me on LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram and uh, Twitter. Uh, and you can shoot me an email. Anyway, I'm totally happy to be in contact and in uh, conversation with people. So please do, please do get in touch. I will. Uh, that's, I, I appreciate that. I'll put the links and information in the show notes so people can click through and get that. Again, Jen, it's been a pleasure. I think this is really a, a key topic for so many teams, so many leaders, especially, you know, they get into that stuck mode. And, and unfortunately, it can be, you know, an existential crisis for, for careers, for businesses. So really great work that you're doing. And, and I appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you so much, Bruce. Same here. Really a pleasure to be in conversation with you. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.